0: Hello, and welcome this week's The Proteomics Show. This is part of a limited series um, of The Proteomics Show sponsored by a USHUpo called The Road to
1: Chicago. I'm Matt Osborne, and I'm here with the father of ducks, Dr. Benjamin Neely. Yes. Yep. And this week, oh, go on. <laughs> Featured uh, Dr. Brian Searle of Ohio State University.
0: Right, yeah, and we had uh, a pretty ranging conversation. We went from deep learning to climbing open source software, Um, And pretty much everything in between. Uh, It was a lot of fun and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the episode, this week's episode of To Be or Not to Be. We're here with Brian Searle. Brian, thank you for coming. Hi, Ben. Thanks. Um, Yeah. And so uh, the impetus behind this show is, of course, US Hupo, and we're all going to Chicago. So, You don't have to tell me about what you're going to be talking about in chicago specifically but do you want to talk about your research um, a little bit
2: yeah so uh we're we're a proteomics tech dev lab essentially uh inside of an immuno oncology institute so the pelotonia immuno oncology institute Um, and so our our tech and technology development is centered around uh this sort of focus for immunology and answering those types of questions. Um, so uh, the the stuff that I'm mostly going to be talking about at USHUPO centers around our usage of of deep learning for doing um, doing peptide detection and quantitation, and how we've been sort of adapting our workflow into this new deep learning world. So we've been doing a little bit of it ourselves, but for the most part, we're still using um, sort of very common practice tools like Prozit, Uh which we've been extremely happy about. And so uh, we've been trying to figure out new ways of leveraging those types of tools for our workflows. Uh, And so one of the things that I'm going to talk about is a new tool that we've been working on called Scribe, uh, which we've just submitted a preprint for, um, centered around doing library searching. Uh, So like old school style library searching from 15 years ago um, uh, worked really well at the time. it was extremely sensitive extremely accurate but libraries weren't very large at the time and we felt like you know if we just grew our libraries to be bigger we would detect more peptides with library searching than with database searching obviously Um, we just needed big enough libraries and uh, libraries got bigger but the the tools didn't get better and so we still don't use library searching as a as a method uh, in general in most proteomics labs um, so what we sought to do with Scribe was build a library searching engine that was for DDA data that was designed around. So the lessons that we learned from DIA and, uh, adapt a lot of those same kind of concepts that we had been building in Encyclopedia and in Kakan and other types of tools into the DDA space. Um, so, uh, a lot of that was centered around like being able to make detections of peptides with library entries that weren't perfect, right? That were good predictions, but not perfect. And so that kind of fit really well into this idea of like, instead of collect a, a giant library, why don't we predict a library that is a fastest sized library and then use a sort of more flexible or more t- error tolerant tool for doing the, the searching? And so we're finding that it's like, it's a better search tool than most database search engines because it can use all this fragment level information. It uses retention time alignment and all those sort of things that, that we take for granted in the DIA space, but sort of bringing them into to the DDA workflow. Same thing with quantitation. Um, we adopted a, like a lot of the same concepts for quant in DIA that we that are that. That, that we're using for DIA that originally came from like SRM and PRM-based methods and tried to apply those to uh, DDA methods. So like interference rejection is something that is never used in uh, in DDA-based quant tools. And that was something we wanted to bring in, bring over to our workflows. Because, you know, we're, and people think of us as like a DIA lab or DIA-only lab, but we, we do collect a lot of DDA and we do collect a lot of PRM uh, experiments as well, so it's like right, right tool for the right job for us. Yeah. So we needed kind of like good tools for DDA too. Um, so that's that's uh, a, a big chunk of what we're ta- going to talk about. Um, I'll also talk about some of the deep learning methods that we've been doing for uh, uh, retention time alignment and retention time um, prediction um, because I think that that Prozet is a brilliant tool for fragmentation. There really hasn't been anything of its caliber. And we tried to make something of that caliber. And and we basically could equal it and not beat it. It's incredible. It's an incredible tool. Um, But we did see some uh, room for improvement with retention time prediction. Because in a sense, that was more of an overset, like just an an add-on into this really incredible fragmentation prediction tool. So. so we thought we could make some ground over some of the other methods there. Um, uh, and with a, a new project that we call uh around predicting retention times, not just for normal peptides, but for all peptide types. So the, the logic around this was we needed to construct a, um, a library that contained peptides of all different types. And so rather than build one model that was for TMT and then one model that was for normal peptides, one model that was for phosphopeptides. we we time aligned all of the data sets that we could get they were high quality data sets um, based on peptides that we could predict using PROSIT, mapped them all rather than mapping them into IRT space or into some real space using common peptides between the data sets, we mapped them into prosit retention times. So prosit IRT space into this sort of synthetic uh, retention time space. Um, and that let us align the uh, 11 or 12 different data sets, massive data sets, because even in a phospho experiment, you still have unmodified peptides. Even in a TMT experiment, you still have unmodified peptides. They're not the same peptides. So you can't time align between those libraries, but you can time align them to a centralized source. So we use Prozit for that and built this massive 2.4 million peptide libraries. So for context, uh, if, if you think about, um, the size of massive massive, all of the proteomic data that we've collected is a community filter to a 1% peptide FDR is 1.2 million peptides. This library is twice that. So this gave us so much more leverage to be able to predict, uh, a lot more different types of things about chemistry and all of these different types of PTM simultaneously which then gives us the ability to add in new PTMs very easily. So, uh, so it's, it's not built to built a new model for every type of new peptide. If we want to train an OGLICNAC model, we add OGLICNAC peptides into our system and then have it kind of like percolate using the old model and adding that information in as a, as a sidearm. And so this gives us the ability to like grow our, our prediction rather than have, uh, have one model for oglick one model for phospho, one model for whatever else. So, and that's important, like, in those cases, yeah.
0: I mean, so, uh, sorry, I, I, I mean, the transfer learning, right, I guess is the right, that's a hard concept, right, is, is can I make this model that can know things it doesn't know before? But you're saying, you know, I, I've got this massive 2.4 million peptide space and I can train on other PTMs that it might not actually be specific for. Like you just said that, right? Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. So it knows that the advantage of a library when you are building a massive library like this, not only do you have like normal peptide chemistry, but you have peptide chemistry for wildly different mm-hmm. types of modified amino acids. And so as long as that is large enough of a space, then the model is already sort of relatively pre tuned to be able to accommodate adding in a little bit more information because it's learned more fundamental chemistry. Rather than sort of like what's specific to this amino acid versus this amino acid versus this one, and so adding in uh, new um, new modification types like with oglitnac, we only needed like a it did really well when we just gave it ten oglitnac spectra, uh, peptide retention times to do training on, and it did really well after a hundred. So. We could build, you know, pretty accurate Oglicknack predictor using a thousand spe- uh, 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 retention times only um, because we're adding in, we're augmenting this other library that knows all about all this other chemistry.
0: Can I ask uh, uh, just three quick things? What did you called it? knowledger? What was that? A chronology chronology chronology. Okay, cool. Okay. The, I missed that as well. Because it's retention times. Okay. Um, what? I mean, what, so that initial training, um, I always think, you know, a lot of times they'll tell you how much the cost was. So like, um, the new, uh, dream studio, I think they spent a million dollars to do this diffusion space model. Like how, how hard was that initial training? Like, well, I am yeah. hours, you don't have to give me money, but like, what, what was the approximate hours on that?
2: No, space. it's like stupidly low. We did it on normal desktop <laughs> okay, computers. Never
0: that- okay. So, so the
2: the problem is constructing the library to begin with uh-huh. right if you construct a really good training data set you don't need to worry so much about having a very complex model uh-huh. right so our our actual the actual deep learning model itself is uh is using it, it uses a resnet uh, approach a residual networks approach and it's this relatively new concept but they're pretty small networks right we only use essentially Three uh, uh, ResNet nodes, and each node is actually very simple. Um, so the the parameter space is uh, a lot simpler than something like DeepLC, which tries to integrate a lot of pieces of information simultaneously into some massive thing. Um, uh, this is definitely doable on like a normal computer with a a reasonably normal, not an expensive GPU. Wow, uh, to do the training. So uh, we did none of the training on the cloud.
0: Wow! Yeah, because I know that's you. Know, we just did this kind of big, you know, where are we at with deep learning, and you know, that's the was the recommendations from the Dome group, right? Is you need to go simpler, not you know, we're going to layer on transformers and diffusion and God knows what. Like, so you you actually did take this simpler architecture, which enabled this. I mean, that that's it's quite surprising. I mean, on a laptop, I love it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I. I... Yep. Anyone that knows me knows that I, I actually hate computers and I hate like using Stop. computers. So I Stop. definitely hate, yeah. Uh, I, 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 need I, it.
0: I mean, good thing you don't do computers. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? This is like when I call you, and he's like, uh, wait, I don't even have scaffold on my computer. Like like it's these ridiculous Brian statements. Like, I hate computers. Give me some pen and paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um <laughs> uh
2: but yeah, simple simple things that we can execute on normal desktops. That's yeah. that is totally what I'm excited about. I'm not interested in like these massive uh, uh, deep learning efforts that require um, having to go to Amazon every time.
0: Are you? You mentioned not normal, and you're kind of implying I think PTMs. Um, uh, you know the obvious one that's hot is you know veto peptides, right? Which I I think Ben was probably thinking. Yeah, Osborne. Is that also that part of it? Question. Sorry, Dan, my You one. go.
1: I'm not <laughs> gonna, Yeah, no. I mean, you're in the your immunology department. Of like, yeah, yeah. Are you, Can you train this on, you know, HLA, MHC, whatever we're calling? Yeah.
2: I mean, it's it's actually even a lot easier than that because the the guys at, at um, in Munich uh, that do Prozit, So in Bernard Kusters' sure. lab, um, Matthias Willem's lab they have already constructed a massive library of immunopeptides or synthetic immunopeptides that have been known or predicted. And that gives us a, a huge boost in being able to predict those types of peptides because they've already collected so much data on those types of peptides specifically. So not just non triptic peptides, but specifically MHC
1: class one peptides. Oh. But it but, but doesn't predict those yet, right? Or public facing doesn't predict those or, or does it? But it, it actually does a really
2: good job with fragmentation for non-tryptic peptides. Yeah, this is right. definitely like a hidden secret of that model um, that we've used it quite a bit for non-tryptic peptides. Uh, and it is it is not as good as with tryptic peptides, right? Tryptic peptides have very simple chemistry because they have basic residues uh, in- insured on the C-terminus. And if you've got a basic N-terminus, you have fairly... Straightforward predictions using the mobile proton model. If you, even if you were just kind of like doing this with pen and paper, um, you would kind of roughly know what the right intensities would be. So if you had, you know, someone that was really well versed in this type of chemistry, like Vicky Waisaki, then she would be able to tell you this is the high ion. This is what I would say is probably the lowest ion and be able to get actually quite close to that and estimate, um, just using her, her neural network and her brain. Um, so. I, I think that those types of peptides are super easy, uh, non-tripic peptides are harder, uh, but it does, because it has so much non-tripic peptide data as its backbone now, I think it's actually is quite good at predicting these, uh, at least with the 2020 model,
1: um, the most recent model. Wow. Oh, yeah. And so that's, uh, yeah, I did not realize that you could do that with, and, and I'd heard, you know, talks that. I, that they were acquiring the data, I didn't know if could use it, so I have to I have to look at that. Um, my my number one question here is and is anytime we talk about retention time prediction for peptides, well, the first thing I think you know is one, will it work, and two, can it deal with the fact that mass spectrometers have like, and how does it deal with the fact that mass spectrometers just do lousy chromatography?
2: Yeah, that's a super interesting question, um, mass spectrometrists. You mean, yeah, I, yeah. I think that. The um, yeah, we, we do terrible chromatography, and that's that's okay in most cases. I think it's actually pretty good for a lot of Dia applications and VDA applications to do bad chromatography. Um, we do our predictions in uh, in terms of a percent acetonitrile. and so this uh, actually could let you kind of align with your column. So if you knew what your gradients were. You could actually say, okay, this is when I expect this peptide to, 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 to leave because this is the percent of acetonitrile that I expect mixing at that point in the column. Um, so this is, uh, this is work that we did in collaboration with Oleg Kronkin's lab and his, uh, uh, his lab has been collecting large retention time libraries as well, um, yeah. with the intention of being able to kind of map those down into very specific uh spaces for a for person of cedonitrile. So we we mostly just map into that space um in 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 this type of work. So um so that gives us, I think, a good ability to predict an absolute essentially an, a real fundamental physiochemical property of these peptides rather than predicting like their IRTs, which is kind of like a made up number, right? Some of them can be negative. They don't mean anything. Um so uh but that doesn't get to the question of like how do we deal with inaccurate data, and I guess that has to do with how the search engine tries to deal with that type of problem, um, rather than how uh, how the model the model tries to predict as good of a peptide retention time as possible, um, as long as it is reasonably generalizable. And we find that the model actually does reasonably generalize well, no matter if you're using heated or unheated columns or that sort of thing. Um, but I think the the crux of the question is like, how do we deal with retention time alignment and fuzzy retention times where peptides rearrange on column, um, and that has to do with uh, like how the search engine deals with it. So, with um, with Scribe that I talked about at the beginning and Encyclopedia, our Dia tool, we do um, what is called like a kernel density estimate of retention time alignment, and this is something that we published back in 2018 um has now been adopted in skyline actually it's it's a super effective way of thinking about it basically the, the algorithm thinks of so when you look at a retention time scatter plot you see a bunch of dots right a bunch of of dots and you're like there's clearly a line here it's, it just goes right through here and so what i was trying to do was come up with an algorithm that mimicked what your brain is doing what your eye is doing And so it's seeing a density, right? It's seeing there's a lot of points over here. There's not so many points over here. And so the way we thought of trying to deal with this was try to deal with each point as essentially like a little pile of sand. So if if we have this nice flat surface, we kind of pile up little piles of sand where each one of those dots are. And they start stacking up, right? They start stacking up into a mountain range, essentially. And so then uh then the approach that we have is just a what we call a range walking algorithm where you start at the top of the peak and then you just trace the um the sort of uh the arete or the um the 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 peak line all the way down for this mountain range um until you get to the beginning and the end of the gradient and the algorithm is like stupidly obvious because that's just how your brain kind of it sees that big density. It says, here's the line. Um, but it works remarkably well. It works way better for us than any of the methods that, that use lowest or use, um, uh, a median averaging across the retention time. It deals with most of the types of problems that we would encounter where you have, you know, a bunch of peptides that are misaligned or something like that. Um, because it, it takes into consideration the, holistic view of this mountain range rather than try to deal with like fitting each of the individual points. Uh, that's the type of algorithm like when I think about computers, that's the type of algorithm that I get excited about because it's it's thinking of like what's the stupidest, simplest way your brain actually does this type of work. Um, so most of the cool algorithms that I think we think about are in that that yeah. mind. because most of the time when we're trying with these algorithms, trying to recreate what what someone really smart can do already right just by looking at that 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 spectrum and say this is the right peak because i i know prolines are gonna so they had like these crazy expert models right the where you're basing this off of like an like someone's someone who's really smart's brain like how does that brain work and i think that that trying to use that approach for these types of questions i think is super fun
1: and it, it just recalled while well, you were you giving this great analogy that that someone had told me you were a climber because you uh you dropped <laughs> you just threw a red into yeah. uh, your, <laughs> into your mountain analogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh uh, yeah,
2: right. I more than you would think. And uh and this is, um, this is something I was a little bit nervous about coming to Ohio because, uh, we, we moved out during a pandemic and we moved out essentially sight unseen. Like, uh, um, uh, I had traveled out for like a, a first interview to kind of meet everyone, but then, then, uh, everything shut down before I could do a second interview. And so my wife never came out to go see anything. Um, and so, uh, in in the end we were like okay well we're doing this and what 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 happens um but we're both avid climbers um it turns out ohio is up on a plateau the allegheny plateau and uh and so all of the rivers around and there's a bunch of rivers around columbus they all cut crevices and and channels into the plateau and so in many of the river beds there are cliffs they're not huge. They're not like, uh, Pacific Northwest style mountains, but, um, we can get, you know, like, uh, a 60, 80 feet of climbing in, like a normal sport route, uh, outdoors for climbing or bouldering. There's actually more climbing areas in an hour radius of us than we ever had in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle or Portland. Like mind bogglingly, there's so much variety here. See? Um, So yeah, totally cool. That
0: that reminds me of, I mean, you know, Ben's in a different place, but like I grew up in Chattanooga and it's this valley and ridge. And yeah, you've just got all these like walls, right? Like walls and like little boulders places. And, um, but so, so Brian, yeah, I, this is funny. I, I, we were going over before we talked about things that we have in common. And I forgot that I have this pet theory that like all proteomics people are either climbers or swimmers. And yeah, you guys are the two climbers I know um because you're like i mean you're still actively climbing right i mean you you're you're big i know ben i mean ben sending me pictures like on walls and stuff right like that's a pretty big part of your right that's that's what i'm trying to say so so you it's yeah it's (laughs) yeah so yeah we
2: were a little bit nervous going to ohio but in the end actually uh it 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 turned out remarkably well And, and if you go further south to like west virginia there's some of the best yep. places to climb in the country uh, down there. And it's
1: not that far away from where we are here. So, yeah, yeah um, we should meet up sometime. Well, uh, I guess they, my, my parents live near Seneca uh, Rocks. Nice. I, oh, I'm fantastic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at, at so many cool areas um,
2: like Red River Gorge, New River Gorge, so many fantastic climbing areas. So, uh, I would totally
1: be up for that. Definitely. So for yeah. you guys, cool. yeah, i never would have guessed that about Ohio. Indiana was, uh, it was, it was so yeah. So if, <laughs> if on the, on the west side of Ohio,
2: closer to Indiana, that's where the plateau kind of drops off. Um, yeah. so cool. it's, it's yeah. Right through central Ohio is actually pretty good climate.
0: Now, as the, I used to climb too many years ago. Are you guys, are you, are you, are you talking like bouldering? Or are you doing like, you've got a belay, like you're set lines and, and going up walls type type deal? all the above like do you have a preference
2: yeah um so my wife is a big like really likes to boulder she prefers to boulder um i think i prefer to sport climb um these days but it's i i'm super open to whatever i always was a little bit afraid of doing uh big trad routes or like uh really long multi-pitch climbing and so actually in a sense coming to ohio has been kind of a godsend that i don't have to worry about that sort of thing anymore (laughs) uh but uh but yeah, so uh, I think I think I like to to do climbing usually where I can see the ground. Um, but beyond that, I'd, I'm pretty open.
1: Uh, how are you been on that? Yeah, um, you know, just because Maryland, the way Maryland is, you know, it's it's mostly top roping, and there's some places in Pennsylvania where I do sport. That, uh, um yeah, uh, finding uh, belay partners that can belay sport, as I've got Oliver, has been a little sort of more challenging. So it's more of a top rope thing most of the time. Sure.
0: What a, yeah, um, a way to sport a lot you're of the, and you're sighting anchors. Is that what you guys are saying? Okay, cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Typically it's bolted to the wall and you clip okay. and then you climb and clip, That's uh, a little more danger because you, you can fall a little bit.
2: Um, a lot of the rock out here is kind of on the softer side. So there, but there are a handful of areas that where the rock is strong enough for us to have bolted lines. Uh, so, um, there's there's two areas in reasonably close distance dots that that have sport lines uh, with bolted routes
1: yeah awesome i would never have guessed that so that's (laughs) yeah you keep up on a hobby (laughs) now now do either of you spelunk as
0: well because again then chattanooga that was like you could find like a hole in the ground and just go to town it was
1: great No. I, I'm so claustrophobic. Uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> no. I don't like <laughs> is that yeah. how one of their hole in
0: the <laughs> It's really dark. I mean, I know that's like a stupid statement, but like, I think mean, that's the thing is, you know, if you, if you do for some reason lose your light, it's really dark. And then that part, it's kind of, it, it's a little, it's a little freaky sometimes. And the fact that like, you'll have a crack and you'll be like, why is that crack a hundred feet deep? Um, so, yeah. No, that's that's so yeah Brian we were going to ask you about um hobbies which you've basically answered um I know we had uh, some other guests talk about it and you know, my answer was like I used to have hobbies and then I had children um I'm going <laughs> to ask because I think you said this in an interview recently so are you still throwing clay is that the right way to say that Oh yeah How do I, say uh, that?
2: I I yeah uh it- Yeah. 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 Throwing. That sounds good. Um, yeah. Uh, so I haven't since coming to Ohio. Um, I, I was an avid thrower in Portland, uh, and, uh, and I did, I, I did pot a little bit. I did do a little pottery and, uh, in Seattle, but, um, but I, I haven't found the right place to do that here. Now there is a pretty strong ceramics community here. Uh, but it's, uh, I haven't had the time to kind of reach out into them. Um, but yes, that's, uh, definitely something that was a, a pretty major part of my life for, uh, for quite some time. Originally I, so when we started Podium Software in 2004, I, I had been intentionally, I had been intending to go to grad school. So I applied to a bunch of grad schools. I got into a few places. I committed to going to one school. And uh, and then Mark and I were in a hotel room. Mark Turner and I were in a hotel room late one night at a conference. And uh, during the summer before I was going to start my PhD, um, and we had some ar- ideas for what what we wanted to do with a company. And so that became Proteum Software, uh, and we made things like Scaffold out of that. Um, but uh, and so basically, I, I like said, OK, I'm going to uh, defer a year. And then ultimately, I ended up kind of quitting out of that department, um, which I think was a good thing for me in the end. But uh, but at the time, I was like, OK, if I'm doing this, then I need to come up with some new hobbies uh, to to have something else going on. And so then there was a ceramic studio that was just down the road from where my apartment was. And so I, in Portland and I, I, so I just went down there and just started doing that as kind of like something to have occupied my time. So that I wasn't completely focused on starting this company. Um, and that just grew into something that I loved to do. Uh, so, uh, and I still, um, uh, I, I threw at that, uh, uh, community studio for, uh, a, about a decade, um. And just got more and more proficient at it, uh, to the extent that when I was thinking about, you know, every time I kind of feel like I like to reinvent myself every decade or so, every 10 years, I want to do something kind of different. And so at that time, I was trying to make the decision, did I want to like continue in, uh, academia, like go to to undergrad, to, to graduate school again, uh, I guess for the first time. Um, and try to go like a professor route, or did I want to do something entirely different? And I I had seriously considered just becoming a professional potter for uh, for a considerable amount of time when I was making that deliberation because uh, it it I really was in tune with the community there, and it was just a lot of fun for me. That's... Um, in the end, I decided that you know I, I didn't want to do that. Uh, I, I wanted to try my hand at academia instead, but um, but it was it was a legitimately serious consideration. Uh, to just kind of like, you know, I'll 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 kind of like drop out of science and just do pottery instead.
0: Brian, do you want to talk? I mean, I, I know you've given this talk before, but you're kind of like the backwards science, right? Like the backwards trajectory. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, do you want to, so you've kind of told us that, and you can go back further in your origin store if you want, but we kind of like to ask people like, how'd you get where you are? So you, you can go back further or you can start as Brian contemplating Pottery versus academia, but you so you had started that. Actually, I want to go back. So you started this company, yeah, two thousand four ish. I know I first saw you. I mean, obviously because of we, I was in a lab that was doing scaffold uh, around twenty ten. But like we would run across like all your old presentations, right? They were like you were renowned, I think, for that. Like you had this skill of communication. But can you, yeah, start wherever you want. But yeah, how did you go from that to Ohio State, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess
2: I guess maybe maybe to start further back, I, I did undergrad at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, in chemistry. So I was a chemistry major, but I was
0: actually kind of a terrible chemist. Uh, and so I knew that I needed to wait. We've had somebody else be terrible chemist. Are there are like three terrible chemists so far. I feel like we've had a consistent I'm bad, chemistry. bad chemistry.
1: People are learning from this experience. Okay. Okay. So sorry, right.
0: sorry to interrupt. Okay. So bad chemists, That's yeah, a prerequisite.
2: I mean, maybe that is a prerequisite <laughs> for, for mass spectrometry, or to funnel people into mass spectrometry as they fail out of organic chemistry or whatever. Uh, right. I, so yeah. So like my my undergrad thesis was in organic chemistry, uh, not in computers. I actually didn't take a computer class until my senior year in college. Um, just wasn't. I wanted to avoid it entirely, um, but, uh, but I, so I knew I needed to do something that wasn't chemistry. So when I got out of undergrad, like I had two job opportunities. One was doing organic chemistry and the other one was working in a fledgling proteomics lab, uh, and for like, like half the pay, uh, uh as a research assistant. And so I, I went with that because I didn't want to do organic chemistry. Um, and so, uh, I didn't really have that much computer experience, but I had, uh, maybe more than other people around and, uh, and just sort of fell into writing software there, uh, as the way to do things. So this was in, uh, Nagala's uh, Nogales lab. Uh, he's, I don't think is actually doing proteomics anymore. Uh, uh, but this is sort of like in a very early functional genomics lab that was branching out and trying to buy their first instrument. So we had a QTOF 2 uh, from Waters. Uh, it was broken probably 60% of the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we did some kind of cool work um, in that lab. A lot of it centered around the idea that the human genome was had just been sequenced and that database searching was a thing, but if you wanted to do work in a non-human organism, you were kind of screwed. And so all of our research was focused around trying to do uh, monkeys and amniotic fluid in monkeys, and uh, and there was no monkey genome, no no uh, macaque genome. So we had to develop tools that were focused around thinking about sequence variants and uh, de novo sequencing as a the prime method for doing detection of peptides because uh, the sequences were just they were sufficiently different the database searching just wasn't very effective. Uh, I guess, a human genome. Um, and this is the product that we plan to release when Mark and I were talking that night in uh, in the hotel that we were planning to release this de novo sequencing project as a the, the new search engine because while there was sequencing data that existed, there was never going to be enough sequencing data for your proteomics needs. And this is the philosophy that we had at the time, because it was true at that time. Well, um, in the end, we couldn't get the rights for that software out of uh, Ohio- uh, Oregon State Univers- or the the um, OHSU, the, uh, the hospital system that we were working inside of. Um, they they kept the rights and gave them away to another company. So we didn't actually have access to the software that we had written. Um, definitely lo- life lesson number one. Uh, and one of the reasons why as a lab, we open source everything is because I always want to have access to software that we write, uh, forever and ever. Um, so, uh, and that's why we're super committed into the open source ideas is because of that terrible experience about not being able to use our own software, uh, as, uh, in the future. So, um, so we originally planned to do that. Scaffold was like our second product backup idea and uh ironically in the end with the advent of next gen sequencing like the the original product would have never succeeded. Uh it would have never succeeded because with next gen sequencing like there was never we never were running out of sequencing data at that then at that point. So uh so it didn't really matter what organism it was that you were working in you just get some sequencing data and you'd be fine you'd have a fast database to do database search. So, uh, it, in a sense, we got really lucky. Uh, and I think that's sort of the theme of my uh, trajectory is just getting really lucky at the right times. Um, but yeah, so we, we ran the company, uh, for, for 10 years before I, um, and so I still own Proteum software, but I don't run it on a day to day basis anymore. Um, so at the time I was like trying to make this decision about what I'm going to do. And I ended up deciding that, you know, I, I really enjoyed the teaching component. Right. So you we were talking about the slides that that was the most fun part of being a partying software was the education part, um, you, and you building a, software
0: that could. It was the, you had the little guy, right? Like it was like, yes. there's was the yes. little dude that was talking about like, there's a peptide. And it was, it was almost like not the magic school bus, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, I think that affected a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, but this was you just in a company, like you just love that part. You just jammed out on it. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and like the point of the software we were making was that we were trying to make software that was, uh, was clear and self-describable to everyone. So th- that that's of that sort of like the other angle of trying to do the teaching was that we wanted to be able to have the software teach you how things work, but then also have all of this kind of these presentations and that was always more the the for me the fun part of it for me this was like a way to cheat the the sort of system because like usually to to be a scientist able to give lectures and presentations you have to kind of go through the graduate school uh system you have to get a phd uh to make it right to make it in our field at anything and so this is a way to sort of circumvent the need to do that was to kind of like have basically used the company as the prop to let me be able to be the sort of professor that I wanted to be. Uh, and that worked really well until the point where I was like, you know, actually I really enjoy this part. I just want to do that full time. Like that's the part that I want to do. And so the only way to do that at a university is to have a PhD. So, uh, I reached out to a handful of, of labs, um, and, uh, things really clicked with, uh, with Mike McCos. Uh, where I did my PhD at University of Washington, and uh, uh, it was, for me, a super fun lab to be in because um, it exposed me to a lot of different types of But one of the things that I asked for in the beginning, so I'll, everyone in Mike's lab is supposed to do, you know, some part software, some part um, uh, analytical chemistry or, or mass spectrometry or, or biology. And my rule was that I was looking for, you know, something to get out really quickly. So I was like, okay, I'm only going to do computation. I'm, that's, that's the rule. And he agreed to that. Uh, and then I did a, uh, a, a rotation in Judith Fien's lab, uh, just like a wet lab rotation doing phosphoproteomics. And I really enjoyed it. I actually, like, I came back to that, that being terrible at chemistry and then, Sort of like 15 years later was like oh this is actually kind of the fun part or a fun part of of the role um so to me that that fit back in and then i was like okay i i guess i would like to do more instrumentation more um more biology so for my dissertation i i learned to grow cells uh, uh to do cell culture i learned to do all of the portium express i did all the mass spectrometry. Um, and now I'm running a mass spec lab, so um, uh, it's it's worked out really well in the end.
0: So you're you're terrible at chemistry, but you go back to chemistry. You hate computers, but you insist on writing programs. Like, <laughs> are you just this weird? <laughs> like, I I love the story. It's like I hate these things, but I love them. Which I don't know. Maybe I feel that way too. But yeah, you have some interesting choices, Brian. Yeah, yeah. So, but
2: so I I hate computers, but I like I I really love algorithms, right? Uh, I I really love like the the underlying questions on the computation, and so the only way to do that is by programming computers. But if you like, the reason why I have an Apple in front of me, a Macintosh, is because I I don't want to work on a computer. I don't want to like take out parts and change them for something else. Like the computing part of it is, or the 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 physical device I just hate that
0: part like that's just not interesting to me at all I mean I I, I was always a tinkerer but I think that was because I was like in these poor places like what in Georgia where I need they're like if you need a computer you need to go find the parts and put it together and so I remember walking the halls finding like pieces. Yeah, so this is like 1998, right? And so you're just Mm -hmm. like sticking things together and they feel like, I'm a computer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, I think my, I mean, my, you know, we talk about like getting into things, like my job, one of my first like breakthroughs, I think I got because I had um, gotten frustrated and rebuilt a server and then ran Mascot on it and then got frustrated with Mascot and then I ended up knowing a lot about it. Like, so you get frustrated, and then you know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's funny that you've got you've got a different. It's like you're a higher level love for it, right? Like you, you've still got the the requisite parts. You just you're up there. So, um, no, I, I love your story. I mean, I, I actually, I you know, I think you give that talk uh, occasionally, right? Like the reverse story, the reverse career, and I think it's a uh, it's it's really unique. Um, just how in the world do you I, I I'm waiting for Ben to like jump in but um, whenever I remember when I heard about you going to like looking for jobs and it's like hold up like why is he looking for jobs like is the world not smart enough to just like knock your door down like I really like I think I told people that as a joke it would be like a joke over beers like hey do you Brian Searles trying to get a faculty job like why does he not have was, a job <laughs> like like why do they not just give it to Be like here's tenure, take it uh
2: yeah it, I, it was harder than uh than i thought it would be too but uh but it was a good experience like i i was on the job market for a while actually uh i i applied for two or three years uh consistently
1: that's um that's insane yeah, i don't know it, it's insane yeah, it's, in it's fascinating <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's weird how that happens. Like it's, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. But, um, it
2: helped that I had a really good kind of like postdoc experience, I guess. Uh, so I was a, I, I was at the Institute for systems biology in a kind of like faculty with training wheels position. So, uh, a, um, I had sort of startup, uh, and then and like a, a real salary, um, but a a clock right i had to be out of there in three years uh into a grown-up faculty position basically um but it gave me kind of like the opportunity to do uh my own research and apply for grants and try to figure out my way uh so in a sense like that was an easy position to be in and not worry about kind of like the details uh because i didn't have to do all of the administrative stuff that you usually have to do with faculty uh as well so in a sense it was it's like a lot easier of a position than where I'm in now, actually. Um, so uh, from that perspective, it, it was easy to be choosy because I, I, where I was is actually a pretty easy,
1: pretty good place to be. So um, this is a lot of fun, but um, we were told to keep within a timeline. <laughs> oh, cool. Unless it was going good. Uh, this, this, yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, but, okay. So have you been to Chicago?
2: Oh, uh, so I've driven through Chicago. I've flown through Chicago, but I've never actually stayed in Chicago for more than half an hour. So I am definitely excited about Chicago. So when this came up, I was like, yes, let's, I'm I'm super excited about Chicago. Uh, uh, my brother used to live there and, uh, and always, told great stories about being in chicago uh his favorite city to be in so um uh, excited about eating food and whatever
0: so we've been trying to collect any sort of useful tidbits because otherwise i'll tell you like there's a gucci across the street and i don't think any of us are gonna go shop at the
1: gucci um i I don't need to (laughs) yeah come on how do you smell that
0: yeah it's it's something it's it's got some c's in it um, no, we've been trying to get, so did your brother like ever mention anything? I mean, like, oh my God, you should definitely do something. Oh, no, I, I don't have any of those details, uh,
2: but I will definitely be hitting him up for for information before, but yeah,
0: I'll, I'll give one actually, because you guys are both climbers you know what this has to do with that. So like two blocks away is the cloud bar. It is 94 floors. So there's like, so on the 94th floor of some building, Is some bar and it's got those like windows that kind of poke out. And and there's these pictures that people are just like laid up on the windows, you know, staring down 94 floors, (laughs) um, head I tell you, wow! I've been in Charleston for 18 years, which is flat. I am not good with heights anymore. So I'm not saying like I have a fear of heights, but I remember like when I was a kid and climbing, like I could just stand on things and not worry. I think I haven't been that high 20
2: years. (laughs) the the reason why I got into climbing originally was because I had a terrible fear of heights like as a kid uh and as an adult I was like I want to get over this fear so I'm going to start climbing and so like I would climb up uh you know five feet off the ground and be like okay I have to come back down and I just did that over and over and over again until I could do boulders and then do sport climbing that's probably the reason why I'm terrified of of like big wall climbing, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, 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 I did climbing specifically as a way to get over that fear. I should probably do the same thing with caving now, I guess.
1: But, well, it, it turned, I said the pattern, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I was here, I hate to muster climbing. I don't like computers and I, have, uh, <laughs> I have a, um, you know, build a software company and it's just going on, right? So oh, cool story.
0: But then is it also like if Brian's like hanging out with you, like you have to interpret that as like he doesn't like it?
1: <laughs> you know? It's like,
0: oh, Brian's doing like this work. Oh God, does he hate me? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So I guess we've we've done everything. I mean, we've we've learned a lot. Right, Ben?
1: Uh, Osborne? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I think could, Yeah. Uh, Brian's gonna be in Chicago. He's excited about it. I think that that covers hey, everyone, you should come to Chicago. Right. Yeah. That's,
0: that's our main thing. So I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll use this to, to lead in to the, the credits is, uh, again, this is a limited series sponsored by US Hupo called The Road to Chicago. Uh, again, come to Chicago, you get to see Brian, you get to see a talk, you get to hang out, you get to do stuff in Chicago. Um, also, we want to thank Johannes for our, uh, lead in, lead out music, uh, Kaylee Kirkwood for our artwork. I guess this is on some sort of program app where you should like and subscribe or four stars or thumbs up or something. And, but more importantly, uh, Brian, thank you again for uh, coming today and and for spending time talking. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This has been
2: super fun. Uh, I've really enjoyed it.